All right, this is the word of the Lord. 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. If you will, be making your way back to First Peter. Appreciate Rob trying to make me feel better and attributing the lack of attendance on Father's Day and VBS, not the fact that Joey mentioned I was preaching last week. So, appreciate that, Rob. All right, so uh, kind of found um, a topical sermon. It's hard to do. Um, much rather walk through a book with you. Um, and then also try and make it theme related to Father's Day. So basically I just Googled Father in the Bible and picked this passage. I'm kidding. I did not do that. But uh, it is going to be on the topic of um, our Father. Uh, and it does revolve around that and, and really what the importance is of that. I mean, we always take great joy in calling God Father, but that's not... Yeah, that's not the, the last of it. We shouldn't just be filled with great joy, but there is a responsibility in the fact that God is our Heavenly Father. Uh, and I started in verse 13 reading to you because of it's really the beginning of the inclusio. Basically, it starts in verse 13 with the word hope, where it says, Set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And also in verse 21, it ends with, so that your faith and hope are in God. And what that does, it helps the readers of that time in the Greek that they would know that the central theme of this passage is hope. And we look at it and we say, well, there's really not any despair or anything like that that we would need hope for. But in looking at this, um, I think we'll see that there is a responsibility uh, to have hope because of what all God, our Father, has done for us. Um, and hope is the main verb here. All these other ones, like keep sober, set, all these are participles, so they are going to uh, reflect back to the verb in the text, uh, and that is to set our hope. Um, if you look in this text as well, um, you'll see that it's very relational. There's a lot of relationship language in this text. Uh, for example, verse 14, uh, obedient children, 15, the holy one that called you, 
16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Uh, 17 says, if you address as father, um, huge uh, relationship language there. Um, 18, you have, uh, you inherited from forefathers. Uh, 20, Christ for Christ was foreknown uh, for the sake of you. Uh, and then verse 21, your faith and hope are in God. So there's a lot of uh, relationship. All of this hinges around your relationship with God. Um, so the main thing in verse 17 we see, if you address as Father. So if you are someone who is a child of God and is able to address God as Father, there's certain things that you need to be reminded of this morning. Um, things should be different about you. Um, for, first and foremost, you should set your entire hope completely on the grace that was brought by Jesus. You've also been told in verse 13 to keep sober in spirit, uh, to set your hope on grace, be obedient children, and in doing that, you will not continue in your former lustful ignorance. And then, since we've been called, we are to be different. Be holy, for I am holy. We are to reflect His holiness. So the main thing I want to address here is actually verses 17 through 21. And so that's kind of just a little overview of those first passages there, or those first few uh, verses. Um, and this is not the first time, you know, we see God being addressed as Father. I think probably the most notable or the most um, famous, I guess, would be what we call the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus uh, taught the disciples how to pray. You know, our Father who art in heaven. But, and this may be why, I always try and look and see what these writers may have in their mind. Like, I don't think that God gave too many of them just a, you know, a direct brand new revelation, just something completely different off the cuff from what God has already explained to them or shown them. Um, now, of course, there are revelation. That's, a lot of that stuff is pretty new. That, so I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but I always try and think of like, what is the text behind what this prophet or apostle, disciple is trying to teach us? Uh, and so we're going to go back and look at some in the Old Testament and mostly the ones in the New Testament. And my favorite one, uh, my favorite probably chapter in the entire Bible is John 17. Uh, so if you'll turn there, we're going to read a lot of those verses where John um, is recording Jesus' prayers. And Jesus himself calls out to God as Father several different times. There will be a lot of heavy Bible reading. I mean, this sermon is basically just going to be a lot of us looking at Scripture and reading from it. So um, if I say turn to a text, we're probably going to read a lot of it. Uh, John 17 verse 1 says, Jesus spoke these things, and raising his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you just as you gave him authority over all mankind, so that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. 
I glorified you on the earth by accomplishing the work which you have given me to do. And now you, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world existed. Uh, you can sk skip on down to um, verse 11. It says, I am no longer going to be in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. This is talking about the ones who God has given to Jesus as His uh, disciples and His believers. And I'm coming to you. Again, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, so that they may be one just as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And if you skip to verse 20, it says, I'm not asking on the behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I also have given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. In them, I in them, and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me, and you love them just as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, Although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So we see here, I, I, I would like to think that Peter probably used this as a good passage. There's a lot of relationship passage, or words, phrases in this. Uh, as Peter's writing this. At least we can definitely say that Peter writing to us saying, if you call God Father, clearly John 17 says we can because we are one. We should be one. Uh, we are in Christ, therefore we can call God Father. And so knowing that, the very same one who was the exact same as God called him Father. There should be great comfort in us being allowed to call God Father. There are definitely great uh, joys being able to call Father. Call God the Father because one, we know that we are under his protection, right? Notice that in John 17, he said, those that you gave me, I kept. There's no question about that. The ones that were mine, that you gave me, they're still mine, they're still yours, we're kept. So there's great joy in knowing that as we call God Father, we know that we are kept. Uh, and there's several, I mean, we, we can't list out all the things that we've inherited by being in Christ. So there's no need uh, this morning to try and go through all of that. 
Uh, because the main thing I want to sh- go to here is that there's not only great comfort, but there's also a great responsibility. Okay? We have a father in verse 17 that says that he impartially judges. Does that mean lost and saved are judged the same? He doesn't care who you are. Impartially. He's still going to judge you on your deeds. Now, this is not any type of salvific judgment. That's all. We're already in Christ. We're, we're calling on God the Father. So I'm not talking about whether you're going to heaven or not, whether you're spending all eternity with Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about your deeds. Once you have called on God as Father, what were your actions like? What was your heart like? What were your intentions like? We're going to be judged on those things. Okay? We have a responsibility to be holy as God is holy. And we're going to be judged on how obedient we were to that. So, we should conduct ourselves. How? Well, I think it's very clear. Verse um, 17 is very clear about that. It says, conduct yourselves in fear. Now, that's not normally what we think about. When we think of God as Father, we think of loving, kind, gracious, all those type things, and rightfully so. But here we're given instruction to conduct ourselves in fear. You say, well, that don't sound right. That's not not really what it means, is it? Right? That's just like be respectful and all that type, right? Well, absolutely, we should definitely be respectful, but I think there should be a great fear of knowing that we're to be, we have a holy calling, and we have a direct relationship with God that we should look like Him. And if we're not, it should bring about great fear in our lives. When we're pursuing sin and not pursuing holiness, there should be a great deal of fear knowing God as Father. Because God's going to discipline. Hopefully He'll discipline you now and you'll come out of that sin and live a life that is holy and reflective of Him. But there will be judgment based on your deeds. So, while we're here on earth, we have a responsibility to live a life that would be pleasing to Him, reflective of His holiness and of His grace and His mercies. And we do that by conducting ourselves in fear. Fear is not a bad thing. Okay, A good, healthy fear is good. Uh, Use the illustration of swimming. If you can't swim, you're probably just going to stay in the shallow end, right? Because you got a good, healthy fear of drowning, okay, of the water. Is it okay to bathe? Sure. That's a healthy fear. Hopefully we're not going to slip, fall, hit our heads in the bathtub and drown in the bathtub, right? But we're still conscious of that because we can't swim. We get in the shallow end of the pool because we're respectful. We have a fear of the water, right? Do we go jump off the high dive? No. Do we try the rivers, the oceans, currents? Do we try that? No, because we have a healthy fear. Because we can't swim, right? Well, what about if you can swim? Okay. Are you going to stay in the shallow end the whole time? No. Are you going to jump off the high dive? Probably. Are you going to go white water rafting and fall out and hopefully be able to swim? Sure, but are you going to be a little hesitant of that? 
Yeah, because you still have some type of fear that you know what the water can do to you. Are you going to go just flippantly go into the ocean and just chance it? No, because you still have a healthy fear of what the water can do. Well, if God is almighty, holy, pure, and you're living in a way outside of that, what makes you think that you're not going to be judged when it clearly states that He impartially judges all? Completely. So that's the type of idea, ideal here. You're no longer the same. You're not a non-swimmer. You are a swimmer. You're a child of God here. And you're going to be held to a greater, higher standard because of that. Now, once again, why would you dare live like that unbeliever? If you're a swimmer, you're going to go swim in the deep end. You're not going to just wait around in the shallow end anymore. So why, as a believer, would you still live like the unbeliever? You get to call God Father. You have inherited all the things that Christ has inherited and given you, and you're still going to live like you always have. doesn't make any sense. Just like we would sit around and go, you can swim, why are you not in the deep end? Why are you not jumping off having fun playing in the deep end with all the other people? That doesn't make any sense. Thank God here saying, look, it doesn't make any sense. Peter here saying, it doesn't make any sense for you to live just like you always have. Okay, You're going to be judged based on the fact that you are able to call God Father. Yeah, the world's going to live like the world, but you shouldn't. You are able to call on God as Father. Now, we see this in a lot of other places. Um, you don't have to turn to these. They're short. I'll read them to you. Proverbs 1.29 says, Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 3.7, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So fear here is a... Good thing. We're called to be fearful of God in the Old Testament, New Testament. It's clear. Everyone absolutely should have a fear of God. But we also still, as children of God, should have that fear. Just like, hopefully, when you were younger and you messed up, done whatever it is you wasn't supposed to, you had fear of Dad coming home. Right? Looking back, you're like, that wasn't healthy, that wasn't good, but it was. Because you knew you were done wrong. You knew you needed to be punished for doing something that was wrong. Fear is a good thing. Deuteronomy 4.10 says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Assemble the people to me, that I may have them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Gather them together so they can hear my word and fear. That doesn't sound like a God that's loving, but it is when we know that fearing God is the way of knowledge and understanding of who He is. We cannot, just like in the Old Testament with the sacrificial system, you better fear going into the Holy of Holies in front of God, because God will strike you dead. 
you better fear touching the ark when you're not supposed to because God will strike you dead. That's the, still the same God that we have today. The same God that calls you to be holy, we should be in fear when we are not living holy. We should not be flippant with it. Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 8 sits, says, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in His ways and fear Him. It is very clear that we should have a healthy fear of who God is and our responsibility here in 1 Peter of calling on Him as Father. I wasn't fearful of somebody else's dad when I had messed up. Why would I be? He can't discipline me. He has no right to. But a holy God has every right to because He has commanded us to follow His commandments and be holy as, he's been holy, as He is holy. And He has every right to discipline us when it comes to that. Verse 18. So we're to be conducting ourselves in fear while we're here on this earth. Why? Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from the feudal ways of the life inherited from your forefathers. So knowing that we are not redeemed with these perishable things, this, should, this is part of that of knowing God and fearing Him. Okay? We know that we were not bought by these perishable, useless, meaningless things. Okay? Like the Old Testament people, you know, the golden calf, those type things. Completely useless and meaningless. God didn't purchase us with that type of stuff. He says that those things, those lifestyles, were not pursuing holiness. They were pursuing self-indulgence. He says all that was meaningless. And you should not be living in that type of lifestyle. But in verse 19, he says, You're not bought with blood, or you're not bought with silver and gold, those perishable things, but you're bought with precious blood. As of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Those things that can only take away your sins. Gold and silver couldn't do it. Actually, all those lambs and bulls and goats and birds, whatever else they had to sacrifice, those couldn't take it away. Kind of postpone the wrath of God another year and another year in that sacrificial system. Covers them up, covers them up. But now we've been bought with a precious blood, one that was perfect. And why was it perfect? Because it was of the obedient Son. He had no reason to die for his own sins. That's the reason why he was capable of dying for every person's sins. He had no spot. He had no blemish. His blood was not tainted with sin. It was pure. And it was perfect. And it was the only one that was acceptable to a holy God because it was the obedient son's blood. Now, this was not some... Oops, they didn't do it right. I've got to come up with a different plan. God 
clearly in verse 20 says, For he, Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world. But he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. I said, this was not some type of, oops, they really messed up. I really thought they were going to be able to handle this sacrificial system. I really thought they were going to be able to live right and obey the Ten Commandments. No, that was never the idea. The Ten Commandments were given to show them how unholy they were. How they could never live up to the standards of a holy God. Always in mind that Christ would come along and pay for their sins. So Christ was foreknown. He appeared at the right time for our sake. And He was also for, through Him that we were saved. If you look in verse uh, 20, for the foundations of the world, having appeared in the last time for the sake of you. And verse 21 also says that through Him are believers in God. It's only through this blood, only in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ can we know the Father and be in Him. So, this is all part of that responsibility of being able to call God Father because He didn't purchase us with some useless, perishable thing that was going to fade away. No, it cost His Son's blood. And you better believe that if God's going to sacrifice His Son for you to live however you want to do, there's going to be punishment. We're not off the hook just because we claim God as Father. No, we're really put on the hook because we know that God Almighty is holy and only thing that comes into contact, into His presence, has to be holy. Now, we can't do that. We know that. We know that it's only by the blood of the Lamb that we're able to come before Him. But we have responsibility in conducting ourselves in fear knowing that we don't just live a life that's pleasing to us. We have a huge responsibility to pursue holiness because God is holy. And notice that all of this is done in, in the work of God. It's God's work that's done. Verse 21 says, For through Him are believers in God, who raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory. God's doing all of this. He done that. He had Him slain. He raised Him and He seated Him at His right hand in glory. Why? So that your faith and hope are in God the Father. He had to do all these things so that you would place your faith in Him, knowing that He is a good Father, knowing that He is a great God, and He did it for our sake. He provided the way through Christ. He raised Him from the dead and gave Him glory so that we might believe in Him and place our faith and hope in Him. And I love this faith and hope um, I think this is a great model uh, of knowing or being able to uh, witness to people that say, well, I just don't know. I, you know, I, I prayed a prayer at VBS 25 years ago, um, but I don't, I don't know now. 
Or, hey, at this one point, I, I really thought I was saved and I really thought that God had forgiven me my sins and that I was headed to heaven, but I just I don't know anymore. Well, what's your faith and hope in? Is it in your prayer that you prayed at VBS? Is it in some emotional feelings, whatever, that you had one Sunday morning? If it's not in Christ's work, God's work through Christ, of Him dying on the cross, being buried, risen, and seated at the right hand of God, coming back again, then your faith and hope's in the wrong thing. I would say that you're definitely not a child of God. It's only faith and hope in Christ by the works of Christ. And a lot of people say, well, you know, why would he do this? I I can't explain that. I've said it several times before. If it was me, I would just gave up on human beings a long time ago. Because we've got thousands and thousands and thousands of years of complete disobedience to a holy God. Like, why does he continue? Why would he go and offer his son as a perfect sacrifice for us? That's hard to explain, but I know that it's going to bring him glory. That's the whole purpose in all of this, is to bring the son and God glory. So our faith and hope are not some blind faith or some blind hope that we have. No, it is concrete in the works of Jesus Christ and of God. Charles uh, Hodge said this. He said, Faith is not a blind, irrational conviction. In order to believe, we must know what we believe and the grounds on which our faith rests. Your faith must rest in the works of God. God's the only one that can bring you to Himself. Okay? You cannot create your own way. We, I've heard it several times. Well, I've made peace with God. Excuse me? What do you have to offer a holy, pure God that you can make peace with Him? The only peace that was ever made is in the blood of Christ. There's no hope for any other type of offering to God. But in that, our faith is not just some blind, irrational faith. It's cemented in the fact of God's works through Jesus Christ. If you'll turn to Acts 13, we'll see a few more um, having fear of God. Or actually, uh, the writer here refers, or the one preaching here, Paul, he refers to the people as those who fear God. I don't know why we don't talk like that anymore. I know I've heard the the saying, put the fear of God in you. But we should really have that on a daily basis. We should have the fear of God put in us by having, being reminded of the sacrifice that Christ went through and just being reminded of how holy God is. Um, we'll start in verse uh, 16. Acts 13, verse 16. Uh, actually, do verse 15. Uh, it says, after the reading of the law of the prophets and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Paul's opportunity here. Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. 
And with an uplifted arm, he led them out from it. For a period of about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. When he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, a man of the, of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning, him, or concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From the descendants of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had proclaimed uh, before his coming a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and while John was completing his course, he kept saying, What do you suppose that I am? I'm not he. But behold, one is coming after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to untie. That's a pretty good example of the history of God's people and those who fear him. Verse 26, though, says, Brothers, sons of Abraham's family, and among you who fear God, to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, recognizing neither him nor the declarations of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled, uh, fulfilled these by condemning him. And though they found no grounds for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they had carried out everything that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, the very ones who are now his witnesses to the people. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled his promise to those of us who are the descendants by raising Jesus, as it is also written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I fathered you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, never again to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and faithful mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to undergo decay. For David, after he had served God's purpose in his own generation, fell asleep and was buried among his fathers and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him everyone who believes is free from all things from which you cannot be freed through the law of Moses. Therefore, see that the thing spoken of in the prophets does not come upon you. Look, you scoffers, and be astonished and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should describe it to you. Notice, as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people repeated, repeatedly begged to have these things spoken to them in the next Sabbath. Now, when the meetings of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas and were speaking to them and urging them to continue in the grace of God.
Notice what continued to describe these people. They were God-fearing. They were God-fearing. That should be how the children of God are described. I feel like we've got a long ways away from that. You know, not that God's not love. Absolutely, 100% He is. But His children should be God-fearing. And those that are not His children should even more fear because they do not have the blood of Christ to take away what the, the laws of Moses could not, which was their sins. Let's pray.